This episode of Cardi Nerds is sponsored by Glass Health, a new digital notebook designed for all healthcare providers. With Glass Notebook, you can capture all of the schemas, scripts, and pearls that you encounter and leverage them to take better care of your patients. Their notebook is absolutely perfect for capturing and organizing tutorials, journal clubs, podcasts, photos, and lecture slides that have been building up chaotically on your phone and computer. Try Glass Notebook for yourself today by visiting glass.health to keep all of your medical knowledge in one place. Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hey, Cardioners, this is Amit Goyal. I am so excited for this episode in the Atrial Fibrillation series. We get to learn from an all-star pharmacist crew about anticoagulation options for patients with atrial fibrillation. First, really happy to bring back series co-chair Dr. Colin Blumenthal, cardiology fellow and soon EP fellow at Penn University, as well as faculty within the Cardioners Academy. Hey, Colin. Hey, Amit. It's great to be back. Super excited for another episode in this series. Unfortunately, my series co-chair, Dr. Kelly Arps, sends her regards to everyone, and she unfortunately couldn't be here with us today. This episode would not have been possible without planning by Dr. Anushka Tandon, pharmacist at Chicago VA. Anushka did her training at the University of Colorado, and CardioNerds fans will remember her from the Decipher the Guidelines series about the 2021 ESC Cardiovascular Prevention Guideline. Welcome back to Cardio Nerds, Anushka. Hi, Colin and Amit. It's a joy to be back. I'm very excited to learn from our experts today. We have Dr. Ashley Lockman and Dr. Chris Domenico. Dr. Lockman is a cardiology clinical pharmacy specialist at the Cleveland Clinic Foundation in Cleveland, Ohio. She obtained her PharmD from the University of Finlay and completed her general and cardiology pharmacy residency training at the Cleveland Clinic, where she remains on staff today. She spends a lot of her time taking care of patients and teaching residents and fellows in the CICU. Welcome, Dr. Lockman. Thanks so much for inviting me. I'm really excited to chat about one of my favorite topics. And today I'm joined with Dr. Chris Domenico. He attained his PharmD from Thomas Jefferson University before moving on to residency at both Cleveland Clinic and Johns Hopkins. Subsequently, he was the pharmacy, cardiology, and anticoagulation specialist at the University of Pennsylvania, where he also served as the pharmacist in the CICU. Though he can still be found around the CICU, Dr. Domenico is currently a medical science liaison at Novartis. Thank you. It's a privilege to be invited back to speak about this important topic, and I'm very excited to share the podium with Dr. Lockman today. Awesome. Well, thank you both for joining. I'm really excited for today's episode, but before we jump into patient cases, there is an incredibly important expert opinion that we think need to clarify. So at some point in our professional training, most of us have heard the terms NOAC, standing for Novel Oral Anticoagulant, and DOAC, standing for Direct Oral Anticoagulant, used interchangeably to refer to factor 2A, factor 10A, oral anticoagulants. Can you tell us, and we just need once and for all, bang the gavel afterwards, what is the determination on this? Is there one preferred term? Are both acceptable? Are these interchangeable? Incredibly important. I think this is a great distinction to make. Personally and professionally, I would say DOAC, so direct oral anticoagulant, is the preferred term. And the reason I think that's true is if you see NOAC in the medical record, some providers might think 
that it's the novel oral anticoagulant. Others may read it as no anticoagulation, which obviously are two very different, I guess, points that other professionals might be making. So in my opinion, I think DOAC is what we should be using. I 100% agree. There were some confusion in patients' charts, like Dr. Lachman said, where patients were ended up being discharged on no anticoagulation because of using NOAC instead of DOAC, and then it's no longer novel. So uh, I think we both agree that DOAC is the correct terminology to be used. That was incredible. I'm glad we have sort of a unifying front here because I also personally do not like NOAC with the no AC as mentioned. And now the cardio nerds viewership and listenership, we have an official stance on this. Cardio nerds is full DOAC. So I guess for the right patient, we definitely want a DOAC or do AC, not a NOAC or no AC. Now that we've finally cleared up the terminology controversy, we'd love your help in staffing some atrial fibrillation patients from our CardioNerd clinic. In prior episodes, we've talked extensively about how to assess the clotting and bleeding risk in atrial fibrillation and when exactly anticoagulation is indicated. It would be great if this was the only question we had. But there are multiple different options for anticoagulation and specific scenarios when one agent is preferred. So we've rounded up a few cases that we'd love to get your professional opinion on, if you don't mind. All right. So we have here Mr. Jose Corazon, who is a 57-year-old Hispanic man with atrial fibrillation and a mechanical mitral valve replacement. He has been on warfarin therapy for several years, but while in clinic today, he says one of his friends from Bridge Club shared that he switched from warfarin to a different type of blood thinner that didn't require regular INR checks. Naturally, he'd like to know whether he's a candidate for a similar medication. Dr. Lachman, what would you advise him? I think this is a great question, and it often comes up a lot of times for patients needing anticoagulation for atrial fibrillation. For this specific patient, I do think it presents two unique cases. So one is AFib. And the second is a prosthetic valve. So the first question that I'm thinking about is when are we able to use DOACs in patients with AFib? So for all of our listeners, valvular AFib is defined as moderate to severe mitral stenosis or the presence of a mechanical valve. Some people will also include that definition, those with rheumatic heart disease, but it's mostly because those patients were included in the AFib trials for DOACs. So when you are thinking valvular AFib, think moderate to severe MS or mechanical valves. Now, we kind of already answered the question for this gentleman. He does have a mechanical mitral valve. So unfortunately, we can't use a DOAC from a mechanical valve standpoint. But I also want to think about, can we use DOACs in prosthetic valves? So not necessarily mechanical. And it truly does depend on what type of valve a patient has. As I mentioned, mechanical valves they're always going to be warfarin candidates. We have older data suggesting that DOACs increase thrombotic risk, specifically the Realign trial, which looked at dabigatran in patients with mechanical aortic or mechanical mitral valves. Most recently, though, the PROACT-10A trial from 2022 looked at apixaban and the mechanical onyx valve in the aortic position. And that showed an increased risk of thromboembolic events. So unfortunately, I would say warfarin is going to be the future of anticoagulation in our mechanical valves. Now, in patients with bioprosthetic valves, so our tissue valves, DOACs are very much appropriate if those patients also have subsequent AFib. 
In 2020, there was the River Trial that looked at rivaroxaban, and it was not inferior to warfarin. Lastly, I guess more recently, in patients with transcatheter valve replacements, so TAVRs or TMVRs, what anticoagulation can we use for those patients? So in TAVR patients, typically they don't need anticoagulation unless they already have an indication for anticoagulation. If not, a single antiplatelet agent would be very reasonable. In our patients with TMVRs, the current guidelines suggest that we do use an anticoagulant in these patients for at least three months. I know I'm getting a little off track from our patient, but I do think it's important to explore what antithrombotic therapy we do need for patients with prosthetic valves. So going back to Mr. Corazon, our patient with atrial fibrillation and a mechanical mitral valve, though he does express interest in alternative anticoagulation, I do think warfarin is the safest agent for him at this time. Wonderful. That is really helpful. So patients with atrial fibrillation and either mechanical valve or moderate to severe mitral stenosis, i.e. those with valvular AFib, we would definitely use warfarin over ADOAC. So are there other groups of patients in whom we would prefer the use of warfarin over DOACs for stroke prevention and AFib? Dr. Domenico? That's a great question. So one of the patient population that stands out is patients with antiphospholipid syndrome or APLS. One of the non-thrombogenic complications of APLS is ironically valvular heart disease. Although not looking specifically at patients with AFib, the TRAP study was a non-inferiority study comparing rivaroxaban to warfarin in APLS patients. The study was stopped early because of harm in the rivaroxaban group. It showed benefit for warfarin mostly driven by a decrease in arterial thrombus, including stroke. Even at a two-year follow-up, warfarin still showed benefit in this patient population. Astro-APS similarly looked at this question with warfarin compared to rivaroxaban and showed similar results. There are some limitations in this trial, including starting with pixaban 2.5 milligrams as a starting dose before modifications. Recently, there was a meta-analysis published in JAK that showed similar results that Warfarin outperformed DOACs in patients with APLS, driven again by arterial thrombus, including strokes. Now, the TRAP study had triple positive patients, so those with lupus anticoagulant, anticardiolipin, and positive beta-2 glycoprotein. Astro, you could either be double or single positive. I think triple positive, absolutely, I wouldn't use a DOAC. But for me, even those with single positive or double positive, I would try to stay away from DOACs and use warfarin in those patients. Similarly, another indication I tend to use warfarin over DOACs in is patients with LV thrombus. And a lot of these patients overlap. You know, heart failure patients tend to have AFib, and a lot of these patients develop LV thrombuses. So although there is some newer data that shows that Pixaban may be non-inferior in these patients, I'm still very cautious and tend to use warfarin over DOAC. Other groups that I tend to use warfarin in, especially those who failed DOACs in the past, especially those who failed multiple DOACs, we've already talked about mechanical heart valves and APLS, but also anyone who requires a higher INR goal for any other reason 
or need to customize approach to their anticoagulation and also have AFib, I also tend to use warfarin in those patients. Patient preference is also important as well as cost. The best drug is the drug that a patient is willing to take. And I think we'll talk about this a little bit later, but those patients with renal dysfunction, as well as those with important drug-drug interactions, may be other patients that I tend to use warfarin over DOAX. That was incredible. So just to recap, it sounds like with APLS, obviously, there's sort of a variety of patients going from single, double, and triple positive based on the laboratory workup. And that really in all of these patients, we should be shying away from DOAX and using warfarin, if at all possible, especially in triple positive patients. And then there's been a lot of conversations about LV thrombus, and there's a lot of data going in both directions. So, you know, it sounds like they're just staying with the tried and true method, given that we don't have clear evidence that the new DOAX are not inferior. And then obviously there's a lot of sort of individual patient factors. That was just a like incredible whirlwind of information and really goes over all of the places where you can and cannot use DOAX. Thanks for that recap, Colin. Uh, let's move right along to our next patient. Art Beat is a 71-year-old African-American man with atrial fibrillation, heart failure, hypertension, and compensated cirrhosis, child Q class A. Due to transportation issues, he's recently struggled to keep up with INR appointments, and at-home INR testing is not a viable option for him. His insurance covers all FDA-approved DOAC agents. His serum creatinine is 0.89 milligrams per deciliter, his height is 69 inches, and his weight is 135 kilograms. Is he a potential candidate for DOAC therapy? This is another great question, and we'll take it step by step, starting with the patient size. The original recommendations for DOAX was not to use them in patients over 120 kilograms or in those who had a BMI greater than 40. However, in 2021, ISTH removed these caps. Now, that was in the setting of VTE, but I think a lot of this translates. I would say that two agents I use in obesity are pixaban and rivaroxaban. Due to limited data or negative data, I try to stay away from dimigatrian and adoxaban in this patient group. There's a little more data with rivaroxaban and VTE and a little more data with apixaban and AFib, but I think you can use them interchangeably here. A post hoc analysis of Aristotle, again, that was the apixaban AFib trial looking at patients who were either less than 60 kilograms, between 60 and 120 kilograms, and those greater than 120 kilograms showed similar results to the overall patient population. Although only about 5% of the trial were greater than 120 kilograms, that was still about 1,000 patients. So you can feel confident that Pixaban is okay to use in this patient population. A retrospective study from the University of Pittsburgh showed patients with non-valvular AFib and a CHADS-2 VAS score of one or greater and a BMI greater than 40, again, this was only 10% of that cohort, though when compared to warfarin showed a benefit with the majority of the outcomes they looked at and were similar to patients who got DOAX at other body weights. So more evidence that it's safe to use in this patient populations. For obese patients, you do have to take into account weight 
uh, when calculating their renal function, which is an important distinction. For these patients, they use Cockcroft and Gold to calculate their creatinine clearance. So in obese patients, you want to be sure to use adjusted body weight for their calculation instead of actual or ideal body weight. So to summarize this, I think Rivaroxaban or Pixaban are suitable for this patient population. Where you actually put your cutoff is up to individual providers. I think up to 150 kilograms is very reasonable, but we have no caps and data to show that probably in all patients, it's okay to use. I remember it's a question that came up for me in pharmacy school and residency all the time about how to approach using these incredible agents in patients who are just outside of the predefined cut points we previously had. So it's really nice to know that those recommendations have been removed and DOAC therapy is now more widely accessible to patients with morbid obesity and can be used so much more broadly. In addition to what we were already mentioning, this patient also has compensated cirrhosis that's child Q class A. Does that affect our ability to use DOACs? If so, is there like a preferred agent in cirrhosis? And does the degree of hepatic impairment factor into our decision-making process here? It's a great question. I know thinking about the DOACs that we have available, apixaban, rivaroxaban, adoxaban, and abigatran, I'm guilty of it, but I often forget that there is hepatic clearance in addition to the renal clearance. Oftentimes, I'm very focused on renal dysfunction and how we need to be appropriately dosing these meds. But definitely, liver disease is something that we need to be considering when we are prescribing DOACs for our patients. So just running through these DOACs and how they're metabolized, apixaban is about 75% cleared hepatically primarily through CYP3A4. It also has some renal clearance as well as P-glycoprotein clearance. Rivaroxaban, very similar, is about 65% cleared through the liver with additional renal and P-glycoprotein clearance. Adoxaban is kind of nice. It's 50-50, hepatic and renal. And abigatran actually has the least amount of hepatic clearance, being only about 20%, where the majority of its clearance is through the kidneys. Overall, there is limited data for dose adjustments in hepatic dysfunction, but all DOACs are contraindicated in patients with severe hepatic disease or child's pew class C, in which warfarin is the only recommended anticoagulant for those patients. However, for our patient, he is child's pew class A and has compensated cirrhosis, and so no adjustments are needed for any of the DOACs. The only DOAC that is contraindicated in child pew class B is rivaroxaban. So again, rivaroxaban should not be used in class B or class C. DOACs can be used with caution in class B. And then for class A, there are no adjustments needed. So in my opinion, this patient would be a reasonable candidate from a liver standpoint for any of our DOACs. Incredible. And then sort of as a follow-up to that, I imagine... We sort of already answered and covered this question, but if you have a significant change in your INR related to liver disease, I imagine at that point, then that's considered significant enough that you should not be using a DOAC. Yeah, depending on labs, I know obviously they can fluctuate from day to day, but if there is a significant change in an INR, in my mind, that would either be decompensated cirrhosis or unstable cirrhosis. And I would lean away from using DOACs in that patient population. 
Awesome. That's incredibly helpful. So we're just burning through patients in the clinic here, providing quality care left and right. Next, we have Miss Vina Keva. She's an 83-year-old East Asian woman with persistent atrial fibrillation that is rate-controlled on metoprolol. She has stage 4 chronic kidney disease with an estimated GFR of 18 milliliters per minute per meter squared, with a creatinine clearance by adjusted body weight of 29.4 milliliters per minute, using a serum creatinine of 1.2 milligrams per deciliter, height of 63 inches, and weight of 57 kilograms. She also has GERD, managed with as-needed famotidine, and a previous history of GI bleeding during a course of high-dose NSAID therapy. Uh, Dr. Lachman, what oral anticoagulant options might be suitable for her, and are there any that you would try to avoid here? This is a very common patient case that we see. So a patient with CKD comes in, what can we use? One of the first questions I think of is how stable is her CKD? Is it stable at baseline or is this AKI on CKD? Now, it sounds like hers is relatively stable. Um, So in that case, I am actually comfortable using DOAX in stable CKD. In those patients who might come into the hospital with an AKI, 100% I will be holding their DOAC therapies because you don't know if it's going to be trending up or if it's improving and will be trending down. So stable CKD, I think DOACs are very reasonable. Now the question of which one is preferred in CKD, it can depend on molecular size as well as protein binding, which is probably more applicable for our dialysis and end-stage renal disease patients. But from my standpoint in thinking how these drugs are metabolized, as I reviewed earlier, you know, how much is cleared by the kidney, how much is cleared by the liver, I would tend to stay away from those agents that rely significantly or the majority on renal clearance because we do know that it is reduced in CKD patients. Um, So for that reason, apixaban is probably going to be my drug of choice in CKD patients. You may be able to consider rivaroxaban depending on their creatinine clearance or maybe adoxaban. Adoxaban does have that fun caveat where it's contraindicated in really good kidney function. So in those patients with a creatinine clearance greater than 95, we're not able to use it. So maybe a nice, slight renal dysfunction patient would be a great candidate for adoxaban. But truthfully, I don't see this medication a lot in practice, so I'm not as familiar with how often it's used. Now, I know I mentioned dialysis patients or end-stage renal disease That has a lot to do with what drug we're using and is it dialyzable. There's relatively limited data in this patient population. Going back to 2015, there was a descriptive study that looked at dabigatran and rivaroxaban showing increased bleeding, which is not great, but also increased mortality secondary to bleeding, which is a huge red flag. So in my mind, from 2015 forward, dabigatran and rivaroxaban are contraindicated in dialysis patients. Since then, there have been more pharmacokinetic and pharmacodynamic studies looking at apixaban and rivaroxaban in ESRD patients. Again, I promise I don't have stock in apixaban, but that would be my drug of choice for our dialysis patients. I know some providers may be interested in looking at specific DOAC levels or DOAC concentrations to ensure levels are A, therapeutic, but B, not supra-therapeutic. Personally, in my practice, I don't typically get levels in order to say a dose is appropriate or not appropriate, but I think that is going to be provider-dependent. 
That was super helpful. Obviously, in class of medications, that it would be unfortunate if all of our CKD patients had to miss out on that. Sort of transitioning from that, you know, this patient, she has a history of GERD, previous history of GI bleeding, though in the course of high-dose NSAID treatment. Dr. Domenico, the safety profile of DOAX versus warfarin in this patient in terms of bleeding risk uh, with a history of GI bleeding and how you factor that into your decision making for patients with that or say just like with older age? That's a great question. And I want to start by taking a step back and looking at each individual DOAX versus warfarin The trials weren't completely the same patient population-wise from a demographic standpoint, but it'll give us some sense of how each compares to warfarin. Starting with the RELY trial, looking at dabigatran versus warfarin, dabigatran 150 milligrams had no difference in major bleeding when compared to warfarin, but did have a difference in life-threatening bleeding favoring dabigatran. However, there was more GI bleeding in the dabigatran or There was also less minor bleeding in the combination of major and minor bleeding with dabigatran. And as you will see with all of the DOACs, there was, of course, less intracranial hemorrhage with dabigatran than warfarin. For rivaroxaban, major and non-major clinically relevant bleeding had no difference between the groups, both when you look at them individually and combined, speaking of major and and non-major clinical relevant bleeding. And this, of course, was in the rocket study. There were more hemoglobin drops and need for transfusions in the rivaroxaban arm, but critical and fatal bleeding were higher in the warfarin arm. And again, less intracranial bleeding with rivaroxaban. For apixaban and Aristotle, there was less bleeding across the board by every category and definition they looked at, except for GI bleeding, where there was no difference between the two groups. Adoxaban, both the high and low dose, had very similar results to apixaban in the ENGAGE trial. The rate of GI bleeding was actually less in the adoxaban arms when upper and lower GI bleeding were combined, but not when they were broken out individually, except the adoxaban low-dose oil did have less GI bleeding than warfarin. There are not many trials head-to-head with DOAX trying to answer this question. There are a couple claims data sets that are out there. There's one showing less bleeding with apixaban than rivaroxaban with no difference in intracranial bleeding. There's another cohort of Medicare patients showing the same thing, but this one actually showed more hemorrhagic strokes in the rivaroxaban group. So back to this theme of apixaban seems to be winning out when it comes to bleeding and history of GI bleeding. The elderly are an important group because we know overall they do better with anticoagulation than not being anticoagulated. And we know that stroke risk also increases with age. The trials did do a decent job of including patients 75 years or older. Meta-analysis have basically shown that there's no difference from a safety standpoint between DOAX and warfarin, that DOAX can be safely used. There have been some evidence of increased bleeding with dabigatran in the elderly, and so I would probably stay away from that agent. For those who are frail or have a high risk of falling, 
A Daxaban and a Pixaban both seem to be safe. We have the Elder Care AF trial that looked at a Daxaban 15 milligrams daily compared to placebo in a Japanese patient population that were 80 years of old or greater. And what they showed was no difference in major bleeding, but higher rates of GI bleeding and all bleeding in the adoxaban arm. But again, to summarize, I think a Pixaban is safe to use with patients with a history of GI bleeding. Although not approved in America for our European listeners, as well as those in Canada, the Bigotran 110 is a dose that can be utilized in the patients that are higher risk of bleeding, especially GI bleeding. Now that dose is available on the market because in America it's BTE prophylactic dose, but it is not approved for AFib in this patient population. Thanks for that insight. It really reaffirms that most pharmacists are number one fans of apixaban as a DOAC. So um, switching gears a little bit, let's talk about our next patient. Ava Hart is a 43-year-old Caucasian woman with a history of hypertension that's treated with lisinopril 20 milligrams a day and trigeminal neuralgia, which is treated with carbamazepine 300 milligrams twice a day. She's referred to clinic in the setting of recently diagnosed non-valvular atrial fibrillation. She has a CHADS-2 VAST score of 2, which is an indication for anticoagulation as we've previously discussed. Anticoagulation for stroke prevention is recommended, and she agrees. Could you walk us through your approach to choosing a therapeutic agent for her? Unfortunately, you don't lose the need to screen for drug interactions as you transition your patients from warfarin to DOAC. We could probably do a whole talk just on this subject, but let's stick to the cardiovascular meds that these patients may be on together. All antiplatelets have an interaction due to increased bleeding risk, so let's just get that point out of the way. All four agents, dabigatran, rivaroxaban, apixaban, and adoxaban, are P-glycoprotein substrates. So any inducers or inhibitors of P-glycoprotein will interact with all of them. Dabigatran and adoxaban are not CYP450 substrates, so you don't have to worry about any of those interactions with them. But rivaroxaban and apixaban are, so you do have to worry about them for those agents. Adoxaban is minimally metabolized by CYP3A4, but not to an extent where you need to worry about that. Rivaroxaban and apixaban are major substrates of CYP3A4 and 3A5, as well as CYP2J2. Pixaban is also metabolized by other CYP enzymes, but to a lesser extent, such as 1A2, 2C8, 2C9, and 2C19. Let's focus on P-glycoprotein and CYP3A4 and 3A5. Dronadarone, amiodarone, digoxin, quinidine, diltiazem, and verapamil are all P-glycoprotein substrates. There's no absolute contraindications with any of the DOACs with them, but you should be mindful of these interactions and pay a little bit closer attention to these patients who are on both agents. Dronadarone, diltiazem, and verapamil are also CYP3A4 inhibitors. Dronadarone is one I try to avoid, if possible, with DOACs. There's a dose reduction for dronadarone with dabigatran if they have renal dysfunction. So those are the creatinine clearance of between 30 and 50. It's recommended to reduce the dabigatran dose to 75 milligrams twice a day. The other two key cardiovascular agents that have potential drug interactions 
with a Doex or a Torvastatin and Ticagrelor, but they're still okay to use together with them. For non-CV agents, let's start with the carbamazepine that this patient is on. Carbamazepine is a strong P glycoprotein and CYP3-4 inducer. It is contraindicated with DOACs, and I would try to avoid use with carbamazepine in all of the DOACs. If you had no other option, the one that has the least interaction is Adoxaban. But again, I would still try to avoid use with this agent at all costs. Other agents similar to carbamazepine that you should be conscious of are rifampin, St. John's wort, and phenytoin. You also have to be cautious with a variety of antifungals and antivirals, especially depending on the patient's renal function. A lot of chemotherapy agents or other agents to treat oncological issues also have drug interaction. So it's always important to go through the patient's list when you're about to start them on a DOAC. There's also a good opportunity to ask your local pharmacist for help. From my experience, to be completely honest, asking your local pharmacist for help is basically always the right answer in every single scenario. I don't think I've ever encountered a cardiovascular pharmacist who isn't the most knowledgeable person on the medical team. So I definitely put a plug in for doing that. Our next patient, Davey T, is a 54-year-old Caucasian man with a strong history of coronary artery disease with three prior heart attacks and multiple stents, peripheral arterial disease, status post, a left lower extremity stent two years ago, and an ischemic stroke in 2018. He also has a history of hypertension and diabetes and presents to the ED with fatigue and palpitations found to have a new diagnosis of atrial fibrillation. He is admitted and the medical team determines long-term anticoagulation is needed for stroke risk reduction. He is currently on aspirin 81 milligrams daily and clopidogrel 75 milligrams daily, a regimen he was started on six months ago when the most recent drug-eluting stent was placed. His cardiologist originally had recommended he continue these medications for 12 months. In the setting of this patient's complex cardiovascular history, the medicine team consults you for advice on optimizing DVT's anticoagulation regimen. How would you advise the team and what guidance can you share regarding assessment and optimal management of patients indicated for concurrent oral antiplatelet and anticoagulant therapies? So that's a, a great question and a question we get often. What is the appropriate duration for both antiplatelet therapy as well as anticoagulation therapy. As we know, anticoagulation uh, doesn't do a great job of preventing stent thrombosis and antiplatelets offer little to, to no protection for whatever the indication is for anticoagulation. Luckily though, we have a couple trials that tried to answer this question. WOST was the first trial to try to answer and, and its design is a little bit different from the others that we'll discuss, what they were trying to do was for those patients on oral anticoagulation, and for this trial was essentially any indication, which will be different from the other trials that we talk about, but that they had a reason for anticoagulation, they required PCI, and they wanted to know would clopidogrel alone be safe and effective compared to DAPT with clopidogrel and aspirin. It was an open-label, randomized controlled trial at 15 sites in the Netherlands and Belgium. Patients were randomized one-to-one to triple therapy 
or dual therapy with clopidogrel alone. For patients with a bare metal stent for stable CAD, they receive clopidogrel for one month and up to one year at the discretion of the treating physician. For those who presented with ACS and or a drug-eluting stent, they receive clopidogrel for at least 12 months. The primary endpoint was occurrence of any bleeding episode at one year using Timmy, Gusto, and Bark criteria. Secondary endpoints included ischemic endpoints. So it's important to know that this trial wasn't powered to show a difference in clinical efficacy endpoints. The average age for a patient in this trial was 70, and the indication for anticoagulation was about 70% for AFib. Again, this is different than the other trials we'll talk about. About 10% of the trial population required anticoagulation for a mechanical valve. And then the other 20% was everything else, which included VTE, LV thrombus, et cetera. A little more than a quarter of patients presented with an ACS event. This is a little bit older study. So about three-fourths of patients had their PCI done through femoral access, only 25% radial. The most common PCI vessel was the LAD. And most of the patients only had one vessel treated uh, with about 65% getting a drug-eluting stent as opposed to a bare metal stent. As one might guess, a majority of the bleeding definitions used were statistically lower in the double therapy arm than the triple therapy arm. And this included the need for blood transfusion. So those in the dual therapy arm had less need for blood transfusions than the triple therapy arm. For the secondary endpoint of death, MI, strokes, target vessel revascularization, and stent thrombosis, there was less events in the double therapy arm. All-cause mortality was also less in the double therapy arm. So Woes set the stage for all the rest of the trials uh, to be done therefore after. The next trial we'll look at is Redual, which was an open-label, multi-center, randomized controlled trial looking at the safety and efficacy of adding dabigatran to one or two antiplatelet agents in patients with AFib undergoing PCI with stenting. Again, different from Wost in that this was an AFib patient population. Patients were randomized either to dabigatran 150 milligrams twice a day with a P2Y12 inhibitor, dabigatran 110 milligrams twice a day with a P2Y12 inhibitor, or triple therapy with warfarin with an INR range two to three, a P2Y12 inhibitor, and aspirin. So the VKA or vitamin K antagonist arm had triple therapy in it. In the triple therapy arm, aspirin was DC'd after one month in those who received a bare metal stent and after three months in those that received a drug-eluting stent. So again, only the warfarin arm received triple therapy. So not necessarily comparing apples to apples. Unlike Wost, where they used only clopidogrel, Tecagrelor could be used as a substitute for clopidogrel in this trial, but a majority of patients received clopidogrel as their P2Y12 inhibitor. Their primary endpoint was first 
major or clinically relevant non-major bleeding as defined by ISTH. Secondary endpoints included ischemic endpoints. The mean follow-up ended up being 14 months in this study. Again, the average age was around 70. The average CHADS2 VASC score at baseline for these patients was three to four, with about half of the patients presenting with an ACS event. And over 80% of patients received a drug-eluting stent. The mean percent time and therapeutic range for those on uh, warfarin was 64% in the triple therapy arm. For results, both the dibigatran 110 milligram group and the 150 milligram group had less bleeding than the triple therapy group. And this was true even when they looked at TIMI definitions of bleeding. However, the 110 and 150 milligram arms were not compared against each other. There was no difference in composite of thromboembolic events, death, or need for unplanned revascularization for the 110 or 150 milligram group compared to the triple therapy group, although it wasn't power to show a difference in these ischemic endpoints. The next trial we'll talk about is Pioneer, which is an open-label, multi-center, randomized controlled trial looking at the safety and efficacy of rivaroxaban added to one or two antiplatelet agents. Again, the indication for anticoagulations for these patients was non-valvular AFib, and all patients were undergoing PCI with stent placement. Patients were excluded if they had a prior stroke or TIA. Before randomization, investigators pre-specified the duration of DAPT. So patients were bucketed into DAPT for either 1, 6, or 12 months. And the P2Y12 inhibitor used here was either clopidogrel, prazogrel, or ticagrelor at the discretion of the treating physician. Patients were then randomized to dual therapy with rivaroxaban 15 milligrams daily or 10 milligrams daily, depending on renal function, plus a P2Y12 inhibitor, or rivaroxaban 2.5 milligrams twice a day with DAPT. In the patients who only had DAPT for one or six months, they were then switched to rivaroxaban 15 milligrams daily in low-dose aspirin after that time period. And the third arm was a triple therapy arm with warfarin. Again, dropping the P2I12 inhibitor at one or six months, if in one of those groups. Again, a majority of patients in this trial received clopidogrel as their P2I12 inhibitor of choice. The primary outcome was clinically significant bleeding, according to Timmy, at 12 months. MACE outcomes were secondary endpoints in this trial. The average age, again, in this trial was 70 years old, and about 50% of the patients presented with an ACS event. The average TAD to VAS score in this trial was between four to five. And for those patients who were in the warfarin group, INR was therapeutic about 65% of the time. Both rivaroxaban arms, the 15 milligrams daily or 2.5 milligrams twice daily, has statistically significantly less bleeding than the warfarin arm. And this was true for all durations of DAP, whether they got DAP for one month, six months, or 12 months. And there was no difference in any of the MACE outcomes between any of the groups. 
Although, again, not power to show a difference in these efficacy endpoints. The big limitation for this trial was that both rivaroxaban doses used were not the FDA-approved dosings we usually use for rivaroxaban in America. The last trial we're going to discuss is Augustus. It's very similar to the last couple of trials we talked about. It's a multi-center, two-by-two factorial, randomized controlled trial looking at the safety and efficacy of apixaban to vitamin K antagonists in aspirin or placebo in patients with AFib who have either an ACS event or a PCI. So essentially, basically, patients were either assigned to apixaban triple therapy, vitamin K antagonist triple therapy, or just apixaban with a P2Y12 inhibitor, or a vitamin K antagonist with a P2Y12 inhibitor. The P2Y12 inhibitor had to be planned for at least six months at the duration of the trial. Apixaban was used at appropriate dosing for AFib, so five milligrams twice a day, or in appropriate patients reduced to two and a half milligrams twice a day. And then for the VKA group, INR range was between two to three. The primary outcome was major clinically relevant, non-major bleeding as defined by ISTH. They also evaluated bleeding outcomes according to Gusto and Timmy definitions at six months. Secondary outcomes included MACE outcomes. But once again, the average age of patients was around 70 with the average CHAS2 VAS score in this patient population around four. Over 90% of patients had clopidogrel as their P2Y12 inhibitor of choice. So again, the majority of these patients in all the trials had clopidogrel as their P2Y12 inhibitor of choice. There was a pretty even split between patients who had an ACS event with a PCI and those who just had an elective PCI. A little bit less than a quarter of patients in this trial had an ACS event that was medically managed. In this trial, unlike the other trials we talked about, you didn't necessarily need to have a PCI. For this trial, the warfarin group had time therapeutic range about 59% of the time. For the primary endpoint, there were less events in both the apixaban arms in the non-aspirin arms. The most bleeding occurred in the triple therapy arms with warfarin and the least in the apixaban plus P2Y12 inhibitor on the arm. There was also less hospitalizations and strokes in the apixaban arm compared to the VKA arm. But caution again, this study was also underpowered to show differences in all ischemic events. Wow, that was just an absolute masterclass in what is honestly a lot of very complicated data here. There are multiple trials. The way they were designed is slightly different, which makes the apples to apples comparison a little bit tough. And this is in a very important topic that we see all of the time. So it feels like you're getting into the weeds a little bit, but these fine details are what really determine how you put all of this information together. So if you were to summarize the results of the WOST, 
the Redual PCI, the Pioneer, and the Augustus trials? What were the key takeaways from putting all of those trials together? Yeah, so I think you see throughout these trials that taking away an antiplatelet agent, mostly aspirin, results in less bleeding events, no matter what definition you use. From a ischemic endpoint standpoint, it seems that it may be safe to do so. However, it's really important to one, know the patient populations in these trials, but also that we need bigger trials to, to show actual efficacy that this is safe to do in these patient populations. But so far, it seems to be okay to drop the aspirin uh, early on in the therapy. How do you apply this clinically? So you have a patient who has a recent PCI and already has a history of atrial fibrillation and is on, uh, say, an oral anticoagulant like apixaban. What do you do with their antiplatelet therapies immediately after the PCI? And at what point are you thinking of transitioning off of triple therapy? And then what would you transition to? Yeah. And, and this is, again, a, a very difficult question. And like all things in medicine, it's benefit versus risk. So you have the, the benefit of, of more antiplatelet agents versus the risk of uh, more bleeding. And I think it, it's a lot of individual patient characteristics, right? Your younger, healthier patient who has a higher risk of stent thrombosis or another ACS event, you're probably going to continue it longer. For patients that have higher risk of bleeding, maybe have a higher HASBLED score, you will try to shorten that duration. But I think anywhere from a week to a, a month of triple therapy in your high risk form is reasonable. Um, in some patients, you could probably even do upfront dual therapy with a anticoagulant and a P2Y12 inhibitor. With what agents to select? I think Augustus was a, with a Pixivan most mirrored a real world patient population, both of dosing and, and how they used agents. So my go-to is usually a Pixaban with a P2Y12 inhibitor. Which P2Y12 inhibitor is also tricky? So I tended, especially in patients who presented with an ACS event, tended to choose Prasagrel or Tecagrelor, even though all of this evidence we just presented, patients were on clopidogrel. So, you know, the evidence-based answer would be, you know, a, a DOAC plus clopidogrel. But I think the results would be very similar from a bleeding standpoint and maybe even less from an ischemic standpoint if you used prasagrel or decagrelor. So, especially in the high-risk patients, I tended to use DOAX, apixaban specifically, and either Prazagril or Tecagrelor. 
And those maybe with a, a little bit more bleeding risk, picture band plus clopidogrel. That was super helpful for us to review on this patient. We definitely want to minimize his stroke risk while also being mindful of keeping that bleeding risk low. Just as a brief throwback to prior episodes, remember the HasBlood score was not intended to predict a patient's risk of bleeding. It's more there to remind us what factors we should focus on to reduce bleeding risk. So in addition to all of the amazing pearls we just learned, don't forget to think about reversible factors like his hypertension management or even alcohol use to help minimize his bleeding risk. I was also interested in how your advice would change if this patient had a newly placed stent rather than one that was six months old. Does that change your recommendation for choosing a DOAC versus warfarin or for timing that transition from triple therapy to dual therapy? So for this patient, the timing of the stent really doesn't impact my choice when choosing an anticoagulant. So for our patient, I still think a DOAC is a very reasonable choice for therapy. As for the timing when transitioning from triple to dual therapy, I really go back to those trials of triple therapy and really depend on each drug-specific trial to help guide what therapy and the duration of therapy I'm choosing. Hopefully, we don't have many patients that would fit into the WOST category, but if for some reason they had to be on warfarin, I would do triple therapy for 30 days. Similarly, in those patients or few patients on dabigatran, at least 30 days of triple therapy. The Pioneer AF trial for Rivaroxaban does get a little dicey as these patients did not receive triple therapy initially. They were just randomized to Rivaroxaban plus P2I12 or the warfarin arm. So in these patients, the literature would suggest that you could not put patients on triple therapy. However, it's in my practice and the physicians that I work with, we will always put them on triple therapy for at least seven, if not 30 days, if rivaroxaban is their anticoagulation of choice. Lastly, for apixaban, we look at to the Augustus trial. And for these patients, I'm confident in the literature that we can do a shorter course of triple therapy where it would be apixaban, aspirin, clopidogrel for seven days, and then we can drop the aspirin therapy so that they're only on clopidogrel and apixaban moving forward. Well, this has been just such a great discussion of the tools we have in our anticoagulation toolbox for patients, DOACs and vitamin K antagonists. But let's move on to something that may be in the pipeline. There's been a lot of buzz about factor 11 as a potential drug target, as it appears to be clinically important for thrombosis, but maybe not hemostasis, which on face value seems kind of confusing. This, of course, would be a very exciting new avenue on the horizon. Could you expand a bit on factor 11's role in the clotting cascade? the evidence surrounding factor 11 inhibitors, and your thoughts on factor 11 inhibitors being the future of anticoagulation for our patients who may be at a high bleeding risk as well as a high clotting risk. Yeah, this is a very exciting topic. And very similar to how the PCSK9 inhibitors were found and developed, we saw the same thing with patients with deficiencies with factor 11. They had a decreased incidence of VTE and strokes. When they knocked out the gene in mice, they saw similar results. On the other side, these patients didn't seem to have any increased risk of bleeding, especially compared to patients with hemophilia A or hemophilia B. Factor 11 deficiency is also known as hemophilia C. 
For factor 11 specifically, it plays a relative limited role in hemostasis. Inactivated factor 11 is thought to be converted to its active factor form by thrombin. Factor 11 is then thought to activate more factor 9. However, in some scenarios, factor 11 is also activated by factor 12. And then factor 11 may go on to drive thrombus growth and amplification of the coagulation cascade. The risk of bleeding seems to be poorly correlated with factor 11 levels, whereas patients with higher levels seem to correlate with their clotting risk. Overall, factor 11 is part of the contact pathway of coagulation. And this may be important when we think about potential patient populations of mechanical valves, like we talked about earlier, or patients with ventricular assist devices, where this therapy may be useful. There are a few agents undergoing clinical trials currently. Their mechanism of actions range from monoclonal antibodies to antisense aglionucleotides, and others are small molecular inhibitors. Some are given IV, others are subcutaneous, while others are given orally. So we have a lot of shots on goal here. Most of the data reported thus far is in VTE prophylaxis in orthopedic surgery. But there's data for all types of conditions, including atrial fibrillation. And more studies are either ongoing or planned, with these studies either being in phase one or phase two currently. The Pacific series is one to be aware of, which look at factor 11 inhibitors use in both atrial fibrillation, non-cardioembolic strokes, and MIs separately. The studies so far look promising when it comes to decreasing thrombotic risk, but not increasing bleeding risk. But I still think it's too early to tell what its long-term impact will be. Some of these studies have compared the factor 11 inhibitor to anoxaparin, while others have compared them to DOACs. The bar to surpass DOACs, I think, is pretty high. And we'll also have to worry about the cost of these agents, especially against the backdrop of the DOACs going generic over the next five to 10 years. But I think it's an exciting new drug target, and hopefully it will improve patient care in the long run. Uh, wow, talk about a free lunch. I can't even imagine being able to tell my patients that I can decrease their stroke risk while maybe only minorly or not at all increasing their bleeding risk. It truly sounds a little bit like a pharmacology fairy tale. But I just wanted to thank you guys so much for taking your time to share your expertise on atrial fibrillation and atrial fibrillation anticoagulation with the Cardio Nerds team and listeners today. This was just such an incredibly applicable and powerful episode that I think basically everyone, even those not within cardiology, will be able to apply to their everyday patient management. So to wrap up, I wanted to ask you, what makes your heart flutter about clinical pharmacology in general, or more specifically, you know, being a pharmacist within the cardiovascular space or specifically anticoagulation? So what gets me excited about, I guess, clinical pharmacy, specifically in the cardiology realm, I love antithrombotics. So both antiplatelets and anticoagulation, which was so fitting for today. 
I used to think that, you know, it was cookie cutter for all of our patients and one size fits all. And I quickly, quickly learned in my residency training and thereafter that there is a ton of gray in the cardiology space and even in anticoagulation. So what really gets me excited, what makes my heart flutter is that really every patient is kind of like a little puzzle. So really trying to think of the specific patient details or characteristics that might sway me towards one medication versus the other. So I do like that little challenge that anticoagulation and antiplatelets bring to make sure it's both effective and very safe for our patients. Yeah, I would agree. I think when you look at anticoagulation Specifically, a lot of what pharmacists were able to show their worth originated with warfarin clinics and managing INRs. You know, no one wanted to do it and pharmacists said, oh, we'll do it. And I think that was one of the first things that really showed our clinical impact to the medical team as a whole. I think it evolved from there to a lot of things Dr. Lachman said about, you know, being able to use your knowledge in pharmacology to decide what's the best agent. And while a majority of patients, you know, you can go by guidelines or a subset of patients, which you really do need to use your pharmacology knowledge based on their weight or liver function or renal function or specific drug interaction, et cetera, et cetera. I think it's their expertise in the area as pharmacists that we are able to offer the medical team and really improve that multidisciplinary approach and in the end, improve patient outcomes. So that is what makes my heart flutter. Well, this whole conversation is making my heart flutter. You know, the topic of today's discussion, anticoagulation in patients with atrial fibrillation is certainly high yield. One of my favorite parts about today is just showing everybody the partnership that happens in RCCUs and wards all the time between the clinicians and pharmacists. You know, I know that Colin and Yoav and many other of our friends from Penn have learned so much from Dr. Domenico. And as for me myself, when I began my fellowship here at Cleveland Clinic, it was right there hand in hand in the CICU with Dr. Lachman when she was completing her residency. And I just remember learning so much as we were taking care of patients together as part of a big team some of the sickest patients in the hospital. So I think for everyone, you know, what we take away from this discussion is, yes, how to take care of a patient with AFib and prevent stroke, but also how much that these patients benefit from the partnerships that we have with each other. So Dr. Lachman and Dr. Domenico, thank you so much for joining us today and continuing to teach us in a podcast form. And also, I want to thank Dr. Colin Blumenthal and Kelly Arps for being the series co-chairs for the AFib series, and certainly Anushka Tandon for organizing and planning leading this episode. Thank you all. Thank you. It's been a privilege and an honor to be on this episode. Thanks for tuning in to another CardioNerds episode. The audio editing for this episode was performed by me, Shivani Reddy. I'm an intern in the CardioNerds Academy House Eindhoven and a fourth-year medical student at Western Michigan University School of Medicine. I invite you to check out the episode page for show notes and references. If you found this episode informative, please consider subscribing to CardioNerds on your favorite podcast platform and leaving us a review. It helps us spread the word and further our goal to democratize cardiovascular education. Finally, this podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed on our show and site do not reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. All CardioNerds content is planned, produced, and reviewed solely by CardioNerds. Stay tuned for more engaging conversations and explorations in our upcoming episodes. 
And now, it's time to make like an S2 and split. 